podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Thursday. It is December 14th. We've got 11 days to Christmas. Hope you're all well. Hope you're all having yourselves a lovely day. I was, and now it's really cold, and I'm not having such a nice day anymore. Uh, But the heating is on, so that should help. I I know I've been a bit low energy, a bit weird the last, well, probably ever, but particularly low energy the last week and a half or so, um, dealing with some stuff. All better, well, not all better, but getting better now. And hopefully these podcasts will improve. Uh, So apologies if they've been a bit of a slog the last while. They felt like a bit of a slog to do at times as well. Um, But I hope they've at least been decent. So, you know, I'm I'm trying. I'm trying here. Uh, Let's go. Last night, Champions League. 
we had ourselves some games from groups E, F, G, and H. And in group E, where we start, Lazio went to Madrid, hoping to win, hoping to top the group, and instead went home with a 2-0 defeat. Antoine Griezmann and Samuelino with the goals. Atletico run out winners of Group E. Lazio will finish second. Feyenoord will finish third, and Celtic will finish bottom. But Celtic did salvage some pride from last night. Uh, Luis Palma opened the scoring with a penalty. Yankuba Minta equalized on 82 minutes. He's in on loan from Newcastle. But Largobielka, Gustav Largobielka, he scores the winner in the 91st minute to give Celtic a win and put a little bit, just a little bit of respectability on what was yet another very poor European campaign. In Group F, this was the one where we had a lot of questions this was the one that looked like it was the most interesting going into the final night, and it didn't really let us down. Borussia Dortmund won. Paris Saint-Germain won. Kareem Adiemi opened the scoring. Warren Zaire Emery, who might just be the best teenager I've ever seen, equalized, on, uh, equalized five minutes later. That game ends 1-1. So that game ending 1-1 meant that Newcastle, had to win. A win for the tune, and they were going through. The opportunity was now there for them. PSG hadn't won their game. There's three points between them. Tune have the head-to-head. Tune are at home. They go 1-0 up through Jolington. And then the second half, they just ran out of steam. Pulisic equalised after good work down the left-hand side. Ball comes in, mishit shot, gorgeous layoff by Giroud. How he had the awareness and the touch to do it. Sensational footballer. Drops to Pulisic and he finishes well. Milan hit the post multiple times. Had one ruled out for offside. And then Samuel Chukwesi put it to bed. And it's game over. And Milan deserved the win. Milan deserved the win. And with that win, they go above Newcastle. They will drop into the Europa League, but still continue a European adventure. And unfortunately for Newcastle, they are out. And they're out because they failed to get the job done at home. You look at their away results. They went to Milan and they got a draw. They went to Paris, and they got a draw. They lost in Dortmund. They'll be annoyed at that, because Dortmund aren't particularly great, but they'll be much more annoyed by the fact that they lost at home to Dortmund. They lost at home to Milan. That failure to pick up points at home, which was what we thought was going to be their strong point, is St. was St. James's Park because they've been so good there domestically, but it just didn't translate for whatever reason. Now they've been hammered by injuries, and I would say injuries are the primary reason they didn't get through. So all the smart people who came out 
in August and, and laughed and said, Newcastle are going to finish bottom of that group and are now taking victory laps, give it a rest. You didn't predict that they were going to be missing half their team because nobody could have predicted that. So let's not pretend that you hit some nailed-on prediction. You got very, very fortunate, as they were unfortunate. But Newcastle's European adventure is over. I'm sure they'll be in Europe again next season, So, and it'll be one of the lesser competitions, I would guess. I would guess it'll either be the Europa or the Conference League. And I think they'll do much better. I might actually back them to win it next season. Into Group G, this was all done and dusted long before these games kicked off. RB Leipzig 2, Young Boys 1. Benjamin Sesko opened the scoring. Abrima Colley made it 1-1. And Emil Forsberg gave Leipzig the win to move them to 12 points. Four wins. They beat the teams they should have beaten. Simple as that. Manchester City rounded out their campaign in the groups with a 3-2 victory away to Red Star. Mika Hamilton put them one up. That kid is yet another really exciting player coming out of that academy. Now, there was one questionable dive, but Jamie Carragher's punditry on it afterwards was brilliant and exposing Mika Richards for what... If you haven't seen the Mika Richards dive, it's when he was playing for Aston Villa... It is an all-time dive. Go and look it up. Try and find the the Carragher footage. It's so, so funny. You'll find it on social media. You'll probably find it on YouTube as well. Uh, If you follow me on Twitter, I've quote-tweeted the video with the... I think I said it was an all-timer. See, if you go to my Twitter account... And search all timer, it probably comes up there. Um, it, it's incredible. It's an incredible dive from Mika. But that one from Hamilton last night wasn't great either. Oscar Bob made it 2-1. Huang In Bom pulled one back. Then Calvin Phillips scored from the penalty spot to make it 3-1 to City. And Katai got one late. A little bit of consolation, a little bit of respect on the scoreline. But City win 3-2, and City are on to the next round. So City and Leipzig through, Young Boys into the Europa League, and Red Star are out. In Group H, then finally, Antwerp 3, Barcelona 2. Now, Barca had already qualified, so the game was meaningless. But after Vermeer opened the scoring, then Pau Pau Torres, then Ferran Torres equalised. Vincent Janssen, formerly of Spurs, made it 2-1. Gui scored in the 91st minute, and you thought, OK, Barca are after nabbing a point here when they probably didn't really deserve it. But a gentleman whose name I'm not even going to try and pronounce, uh, we're going to call him George because that's his first name. George scores in the 92nd minute to give Antwerp a well-deserved win and their first points in the group stage. Congrats to them. Well-deserved. They've been taunted a couple of times. But they play good football, and I admire how brave they are. They went to the new Camp. They went to Porto. And they played their football, and they didn't try to be something they're not. So, fair play. The other game was the important one. The other game was to decide who would finish second and go into the knockouts. 
and who would finish third and end up in the Europa League. And in that game, we had an absolute goal fest. Porto 5, Shakhtar 3. Galeno put Porto 1-up, Shakhtar equalised. Galeno put them 2-1-up. Then Taremi made it 3-1. Then there was an own goal by Estequel, which made it 3-2. Pepe made it 4-2. Conceição made it 5-2. And Shakhtar got a late equaliser through Iguinaldo. Porto putting on a bit of a show and advancing. So, where we are... Advancing to the knockouts, we have Bayern Munich, Copenhagen, Arsenal, PSV, Real Madrid and Napoli, Real Sociedad and Inter Milan, Atletico Madrid and Lazio, Borussia Dortmund and Paris Saint-Germain, Manchester City and RB Leipzig, Barcelona and Porto. Heading into the Europa League, we have Galatasaray, Lenz, Braga, Benfica, Feyenoord, Milan, Young Boys, and Shakhtar Donetsk. And saying goodbye to Europe for this season, Manchester United, Sevilla, Union Berlin, Red Bull Salzburg, Celtic, Newcastle United, Red Star Belgrade, and Royal Antwerp. So that is your Champions League group stage completed. And I believe the draw is to be held this, it's to be held next week. It's on the 18th, it's noon Central European time, which is 11 a.m. Britain and Ireland time. The first legs will be played on the 13th, 14th, 20th and 21st of February. The second legs, the 5th, 6th. 12th and 13th of March. Should be good. It should be good. You would have to make Manchester City pretty strong favourites to win this competition this year. Now, if Jude Bellingham continues to play like prime Ruud Hullet, they'll have a chance. If Bayern get their act together in January and add the defensive midfielder they need and get one more piece in defensively, Bayern will have a chance. If PSV, sorry, PSG, get the Verratti replacement that they're crying out for, they'll still have Luis Enrique, so they have no chance. Um, On to tonight then. Europa League and Europa Conference League, the last round of games in the group stage. In Group A, West Ham play Freiburg and Olympiacos play back at Tupola. Those games are both 8pm kickoffs. West Ham and Freiburg are through. It's just a matter of who tops the group. A draw is enough for West Ham because they won the away game. If Freiburg win this game in any way, it will be them. If they win 1-0, it will be them. Because West Ham won 2-1 last time out. So Freiburg only need a one-goal victory. And they've got a much superior goal difference. So it would be them who tops the group. And West Ham would have to deal with the knockout round playoffs. 
Um, both Olympiacos and back at Tapola can qualify to go into the Conference League. You would have to make Olympiacos favourites given they're at home and they are just a better team. In Group B, we get Ajax at home to AEK Athens and Brighton at home to Marseille. Again, both 8pm kickoffs. Marseille and Brighton are through. Marseille are one point ahead. Brighton need to win to advance. Marseille, to, to top the group, Marseille will be happy enough with a draw. Ajax need to win to go into the Conference League. They have turned the season around. They're in much better form now. So at home, you'd probably back them to beat AEK, which would be, would be unfortunate for AEK, who started the group really well, beat Brighton away from home, then got a draw with Ajax, and since lost three games in a row. Uh, in Group C, we have Real Betis versus Rangers and Aris Limassol versus Sparta Prague. This is worst-case scenario for Rangers because they need to win tonight and hope that Sparta Prague, or they need to win tonight or hope that Sparta Prague don't win. So Rangers have eight points. They're a point behind Betis and a point ahead of Sparta. And Sparta play Limassol, who aren't particularly good. Now, Limassol did beat Rangers, but the last time they played Sparta, they lost 3-2. If Sparta win, they'll go to 10 points. Betis would still have nine. Rangers would have eight. So Rangers would need the win. A draw wouldn't be good enough. They'd end up on nine points and they'd end up in third and heading for the Conference League, which, to be fair, wouldn't be a disastrous outcome. And you'd give them a decent chance if they went into the Conference League. But they'll be looking to advance uh, in this competition and stay among the more, well, the more established clubs in Europe, let's say, rather than, I was going to say elite, but this isn't the elite because the Champions League is the elite. But you don't want to be you don't want to be slopping around with the Europa Conference League after Christmas. No way. Um, in Group D, Atalanta are through. They will top the group. Sporting are through. They will finish second. And then it's between Sturm Graz and Rakow for the Conference League. Sturmgratz are away to Sporting. Rakow are at home to Atalanta. He would probably give Rakow the advantage, given they're at home. And Atalanta have nothing to play for. But it should be an interesting one. We'll have to wait and see. Group E, Liverpool are through. They don't need to worry about tonight. Toulouse are currently second. Union St. Gillowa are third. And Lask are fourth. Lask need to win and hope that Liverpool win to go into the Conference League. They cannot qualify for the knockout phase of the Europa, Europa League. Union need to win and hope that Lask beat Toulouse for them to get into the knockout phase. Toulouse will play in Europe after Christmas. It'll either be the knockout or the Conference League. Liverpool will be in the knockouts, waiting in the round of 16. These games are the 5.45 kickoffs tonight. Union St. Gillowa versus Liverpool. Lask versus Toulouse. Um, Group F, also 5.45. 
we have Ren against Villarreal and Panikonitos against Maccabee Haifa. As things stand, Ren are top, Villarreal are second, Panikonitos are third. They cannot qualify for the knockout phases. They can only get into the Europa League. And Maccabee will need to win in Panikonitos to advance to the Conference League. Which you wouldn't give them a great chance of, to be fair. Panikonitos should get a result at home. Even if it's just a draw, they should get a result at home. Group G, Slavia Prague top, Roma second. They're both through. Slavia are two points clear at the top going into tonight's games. Uh, Servette will play in the Conference League. Nothing for them to play for. And Sheriff Tiraspol have been eliminated. Roma hosts Sheriff. Slavia plays Servette. Roma need to win to top the group, but in fairness, you're not going to get decent odds on Slavia dropping points at, at home to Servette either, so... It will probably stay as it is. In Group H, then, Bayer Leverkusen are top and qualified 15 points from five games. Quarabeg and Molde both have seven points. Quarabeg hold the head-to-head record. And then it is Hacken who are bottom and out. So, Quarabeg host Hacken. You would fancy them to win, given Hacken have lost all five games. Molde have to go to Leverkusen. Leverkusen have nothing to play for, but Leverkusen are unbeaten in all competitions this year, so they will probably want to at least hold on to that unbeaten run. Therefore, you'd have to make Quarabeg the favourites to get through. In the Europa Conference League, Lille are top of Group A. Slova and Bratislava are second. They are both through. My Faro friends and Ljubljana, they're both out. It does come down to who tops the group, though. Both sides are at home. Lille to my Faro friends and Slovan to Ljubljana. You'd fancy them both to win, which means Lille will top the group. Uh, in Group B, Ghent and Maccabee Tel Aviv are both through. Uh, Zori Lahansk and Briar Black are both out. Maccabee are one point behind Ghent. They host Ghent today. A win will see them top the group. Simple as that. Now they don't they don't actually host them. The games been played in Serbia, but they are the nominal home team. Uh Zoya Lahansk against Bryblik in the other game. Group C, Victoria Pleasant are through, and then any of the others can still qualify in second place. Victoria host Astana. In some ways, you think, well, that's the hardest game, because clearly it is. Victoria have won five of five. They might well want to finish out the group perfectly, but they've got nothing to play for here. So potentially Astana could go there and get something. Dinamo Zagreb hosts Balkany in the other game. Dinamo have a two-point advantage. You would have to fancy them, given they've got the easier game and... They've got the two-point advantage and they're at home. You'd have to fancy Dinamo to advance. In Group D, Club Bruges and Bodo Glimt are through. Um, Bruges, I believe, 
Bruges hold the advantage in the head-to-head as things stand from a 1-0 win in Bodo in October. Those sides play tonight in Bruges. And in the other game, Lugano hosts Besiktas. Uh, both sides are out. It is just a matter of pride. Besiktas's campaign has been a disgrace. No, as well as they got one point from their five games, shambles. Uh, Group E, Aston Villa are through. Legia Warsaw look a good bet to join them. AZ Alkmaar, though, can still spoil the party a little bit for Legia. Um, Mostar are out. We have Legia against AZ tonight. If, if AZ win, they will go through. They beat Legia 1-0 in the first game. So if they win tonight, even though they'd be level in points and even though Legia would have the better goal difference in all likelihood, AZ hold the head-to-head as things stand, so they would advance. Uh, group F, Fiorentina are through. Uh, Ferenc Varos look good money to advance with them. Genk can still qualify. Kukuriki are out. Genk play Kukuriki at home, so that, that's probably a win. That'll put them on nine points. Ferenc Varos hold Fiorentina knowing oh, a point is enough to get them through. Now, in the heads to the head-to-head, 2-2 in Florence. Yeah, 2-2 in Florence. Is that right? No, that's not right. What am I saying Florence for? It's the Hungarian team and the Belgian team. Um, you'll have to excuse me. Right, we had a 1-1 in Budapest in November and a 0-0 in Genk. So the head-to-head is even. So Genk need to win, hope that Ferenc Varos lose, and hope that there's a two-goal swing one way, well, in their favour. I, I, I think Ferenc Varos can be fairly confident that they're going through. I think they can be confident they're going through. Fiorentina have nothing to play for. All Ferenc Varos need is a draw. That's It's probably going to be them going through. Uh, group G, PAOK are through. They will top the group. Eintracht Frankfurt will finish second. Aberdeen and HJK are out. PAOK play HJK today. Aberdeen play Eintracht. Neither of those games mean nothing. It's just about pride. And finally then, in Group H... Spartak Tanava are eliminated. Nordlsjand are currently top. Ludogorets second. Fenerbahce third. Nordlsjand are a point ahead of the other two and have a vastly superior goal difference. They own the head-to-head against both sides because they hammered Ludogorets 7-1. Now, barring Ludogorets winning 6-0 tonight, Nordl's end will control that. And to be fair, all they need is a draw and they're guaranteed to finish above Ludogorets. And then Fenerbahce will play Spartak. They'll probably win, so they could still top the group, despite the fact that they got absolutely pummeled 6-1 by Nordl's end in the last round of games. Um, Nordl's end are a weird team. They lose 
to Fenerbahce in Fenerbahce. Then they hammer Ludogorets 7 1. Then they beat Spartak 2 0 away. Then they draw 1 1 with them at home. Like, how do you beat the two good teams in your group, 7 1 and 6 1 at home, and draw 1 1 with the bad team? That's the only point that Ternava took in the whole tournament. Bizarre. I, I think Nordal's end will go through, and I think Fenerbahce will go through. Um, but if if Ludogorets beat them, they're out. Like that's they're, they're just out. If Ludogorets beat them and Fenerbahce win as well, Nordal's end are out, despite winning seven one and six one in in group stage games. Calamity for them if that happens. Um, we have some news to get through. Newcastle's wild dreams ended by naivety and injuries. I'm not sure what wild dreams they would have had. I don't think they ever thought... I don't think they ever thought they were going to win the competition, even the most... like, ambitious or... what's the optimistic? Optimistic of Newcastle fans. I don't think they were saying that uh, they could win this competition. Premier League club, English clubs, English clubs, English clubs account for almost a third of a record 702 million spent on agents fees in international transfers, says a FIFA report. The figure represents a 43% rise in the 493 million spent in 2022 and surpasses the previous record of 518 million from 2019. English clubs spent 221 million on agent fees. And I would bet Chelsea spent a large chunk of that. This is just international fees. So this doesn't include Rice to Arsenal. It doesn't include Caicedo to Chelsea. That is mental. Clubs in the Saudi Pro League spent 68 million, almost all of it going to George Mendes. Women's clubs spent 1.1 million on agents in a record 125 transfers. They are two different sports, really, aren't they? Um, Celtic finally arrest Champions League run as domestic challenge awaits to say Celtic have carried a monkey on their back in the Champions League this past 10 years is an understatement it's not been a monkey it's been monkeys a veritable troop when you've not won a home game in this competition in a decade when you were staring down the barrel of a second consecutive Champions League campaign without a victory when time is all but up and you're drawing 1-1 with fine order, hit the crossbar from distance, and you can almost hear the tonal screams of the macaque moving in. And then uproar and an unlikely hero in Gustav Lagerbelt, an underwhelming summer signing. All that Chelsea sound and fury, cha- Celtic sound and fury, chased the monkeys away. They had a good run in fairness to them. That's a very, very 
strong start to an, an article by Tom English, who is the chief sports writer for BBC Scotland. Uh, yeah, Celtic finally winning a home game in the Champions League. Um, but, but more importantly, not taking away from the fact that Brendan Rodgers remains the worst manager in the history of European competition. Congrats to Brendan. Um, what have we got here? A lot of talk about Steve Cooper the last couple of days, and Michael Brown has said that if he does get sacked, he'll walk into another job. I think Michael Brown has been listening to the Two-Footed Podcast because I've been saying that for weeks. Aitana Bonmati, Ballon d'Or and World Cup winner forged by adversity. This is a really good piece written by Maria Garrido. Do give that one a read. It's very, very good. Very, very good. A good deep dive and background on the best player currently operating in the women's game. Mark Clattenburg, ex-Premier League official, says a lack of trust in VAR could drive referees away. You could see why Clattenburg wouldn't like VAR because Clattenburg was an arrogant twat who thought that people paid in on the gate to watch him. Mark Clattenburg was of the opinion that he was the show. He was the reason people had come to watch. So you could see why he wouldn't like VAR because that's a man who made a hell of a lot of mistakes over the years and probably would have been stood looking into monitors four and five times a game being told to change his mind. Um, I So, yeah, you can understand why Mark Clattenburg would not like VAR. We'll do the gossip and we'll go to break and then we'll come back. I think we've got a few questions and uh, we'll be out of here. Manchester United risk losing Raphael Varane on a free next summer with his contract set to expire a year earlier than originally publicized. That's reported by The Athletic as well, so it's not some it's not some made-up nonsense from a spoofer. It's Laurie, uh, Laurie Whitwell, who's very, very good. Um, that's hilarious. United spent like $40 million on Varane. They gave him a three-year contract. That's very strange. That is very, very strange that you would sign a player for that type of fee and only give him a three-year contract. He's definitely definitely leaving for free. Definitely. Why would he leave in January when he can control his own faith in the summer? I think he'll just stick around now, collect the enormous wages that they're paying him, and then he'll be away. Barcelona and other top European clubs are currently tracking Mason Greenwood. Um, I don't believe that, to be fair. I don't believe the top European clubs are tracking Mason Greenwood. Napoli have held constructive talks with Victor Osman about extending his contract until 2026 and including a release clause of about £115 million. 
Um, so, saw some Chelsea fans getting very excited about that. You might want to get ready for what your accounts are going to say. You might also just want to look into some of the profit and sustainability rules surrounding the Premier League and note that Everton, for far less egregious breaches than what you're going to have, they got docked 10 points. And Everton, Everton did cheat. But Everton cheated to stay in the division. You've cheated to stay 12th. And you've cheated far more purposefully than them. Like, you've knowingly broken all of the rules. So I I think you'd have to, in order to get Victor Osman, you'd probably have to pay about $125 in installments so that you could... uh, use amortization to put it on your books at 25 million a year for five years. Chelsea are in, they're in the horrors financially, no matter what they try and say publicly. Anybody who's actually deep dived into their accounts will tell you they're in the horrors. Anyone who actually understands the profit and sustainability rules will tell you the same. Manchester United manager Eric Ten Hag is not at risk of the sack as the club do not want to make any big decisions until the expected sale of 25% of the club to Jim Ratcliffe's Ineos group is resolved. Does it seem to anyone else that they're slow walking this sale of 25%? Like, this was agreed two months ago. It's not a full takeover. Why is it taking so long? Are you waiting until January is over so that you can point to the takeover or the the sale of a percentage and say, well, we couldn't actually buy anybody because this is ongoing. Uh, Graham Potter has been lined up to replace him. No, he's not. Julian Lopetegui is also well-placed to succeed Ted Hag. He's definitely not. AC Milan are in talks with Arsenal over a loan deal for Jakob Kivor. I just don't see why Arsenal would do that. I really don't see why Arsenal would do that. Borussia Mönchengladbach and Switzerland defender Nico Elvedi has emerged as a January target for Chelsea following another injury setback for Rhys James. Um, Nico Elvedi... Elvetti has never really developed into the player that he was expected to be. But he's also a centre-back. So I don't... I know he can play right-back, but he's not good there. I don't know why he would be on Chelsea's list. I would tag that as nonsense. Uh, Manchester United's failure to qualify for the Champions League knockout stages has left a £28 million hole in their transfer budget and may mean they are now more open to listening to offers for Casemiro... Raphael Varane and Anthony Martial. Again, Varane isn't going anywhere with six months left. Neither is Martial, in truth. And, I mean, what's Casemiro going to bring in? 20 million? 30 million? He's 31. He can't run anymore. Eintracht Frankfurt and Girona are keen on Donny van der Beek, who wants to leave Manchester United. Chelsea are willing to listen to offers for Dutch left-back Ian Matson in next month's transfer window. Um, I think a lot of clubs will line up to try and get him. 
Aston Villa could sign could sign 19-year-old Red Bull Salzburg and Israel midfielder Oscar Glauk in January for up to 50 million. You'd have to be absolutely off your nut to pay 50 million for a kid who's unproven outside of Austria. Wolves have agreed a new deal with Huang Hee Chan until 2028 with an option for a further season. It's a great move by Wolves. Everton, Burnley and Leeds are among the clubs monitoring 21-year-old English defender Archie Brown, who currently plays in Belgium for Ghent. He was in the Derby Academy. And when Derby's financial problems hit, Lausanne in Switzerland snapped him up. He did really well there. And then he got he moved on to Ghent last summer. He's quite highly regarded. In um Ineos, the crowd that own Nice and are buying into Manchester United, they own Lausanne. Bayern Munich's assistant coach Anthony Barry is a leading candidate to become the Republic of Ireland's new manager. Really? Let's have a look. Okay, it's written by Mike McGrath, so he's generally very reliable. I'm not sure what connections he would have with the uh, with the FAI. Now, Barry has worked for Ireland before, obviously. When he was at Chelsea, he was an assistant put to the Irish national team. That's quite interesting, though. He's very, very highly regarded. Very highly regarded. The issue I would have is that he does also currently work and has previously worked for Roberto Martinez, who... I can't abide. Um, he's an assistant at Bayern. He's an assistant for Portugal. He was also previously an assistant for Belgium, for Ireland, for Chelsea, and with Wigan. Interesting. He doesn't have any managerial experience, and that really would concern me really would concern me. I feel like Lee Carsley's just the the no-brain option there, to be honest. Like he's done such a good job with the England under 21s. And I know he was born in England, but at least he played for Ireland. So he's got that connection. Coached in the City Academy for a year. Was at Brentford for a while. I just feel like Lee Carsley is the guy to go with. Nottingham Forest have a verbal agreement to sign Brazil and Fluminense defender Nino. That was reported a while ago and then kind of went quiet. But a little, little bit more noise about it now. Right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we will do whatever questions we have. I know we have at least two. 
So uh, we'll do them and we'll see what else is there. See you in a sec. Right. Welcome back. So we have questions. The first one came in, I believe, from Alex. So here we go. Could you make a case that Allison is currently the best player in the Premier League? I know it's impossible to compare goalkeepers to outfield players, but on current form, I can't think of a single player with a greater impact in terms of scoring or preventing goals. Um, I think it's a very fair point. We very rarely see goalkeepers given the credit that they deserve for the impact that they have. And Liverpool are currently top of the Premier League and no player has had a bigger impact and no player has been better for Liverpool than Alisson. Van Dijk has been otherworldly. Salah's been great. Zabozlai's been excellent. Trent's been good. But Alisson has been Liverpool's best player. I don't think anybody... I don't think anybody at City has been as good. Rodri's been very good, but he's obviously missed four games, through three Premier League games through suspension. Um, Alisson missed a couple through injury, but I don't think Rodri's been quite as good as Alisson. I don't think there's a case for any of the Arsenal players. As much as Jamie Carragher is trying to pump up Declan Rice, he hasn't been as good as Alisson this year. Rice has had a bunch of stinkers this season that people just want to overlook because, you know. Nobody at Villa. I think there is a really strong case. I don't think anybody's been as impactful, as influential this season as Alisson. And in terms of performance level, he had a really shaky, like, 10 minutes against Bournemouth. He had a wobbly little spell against City. But that's about it. Other than that, he has been pretty spectacular. I think you're right. I think Allison might be the best player in the league right now. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I really do. I think Allison might be the best player in the league right now. Um, I had been sort of leaning Salah and kind of looking at a couple of others, but Kyle Sack has been outstanding. Son has been great. Rodri has been very good. Douglas Luis has been outstanding. Buba Kamara has been outstanding. Isbasum has been fantastic. Van de Ven, up until the injury, was playing out of his mind. Nobody at United is playing well. Nobody at Newcastle is playing at an exceptional level this season. Gamerish has only recently found his best form. Yeah, I, I think Allison is right now. He is the he is the player of the year. Uh, Guy sent me this, and I missed it last week. Eddie Howe obviously developed massively between jobs. Have you seen similar development in a manager before? Also, do you see any managers who could do similar in the future? Graham Potter teaching lads to do goals, for example. Graham Potter is an obvious one. And Graham Potter's 
Brighton, because let's forget what happened to Chelsea, but Graham Potter's Brighton and Eddie Howe's Bournemouth, there were some similarities between the sides in terms of the the possession-based football. They were an attractive team to watch. They could be quite naive. Howe's team scored more goals. Potter's team conceded less goals. Potter would have a bit more control. Howe has managed to find ways to control games without necessarily needing the ball since going to Newcastle. Thomas Tuchel made some really interesting developments between when he left Dortmund and what we see now. Now, he didn't have the extended period out of the game that Eddie Howe did. Howe took that time off and he went and he observed top coaches. He went and he observed Antonio Conte. He observed Klopp. He observed Tuchel. He observed Pep. But the one he spent the most time with, from what I can can gather, was Diego Simeone. And when you look at this Newcastle team, I mean, they're carved from Simeone-type granite. Super strong defensively. Now, admittedly, at the moment, they're struggling defensively, but that's because of injuries, not because of anything structural or systemic. They manage the game in terms of managing the clock, managing how long the ball is in play. They're cynical. They foul in the right areas. They're very, very disciplined in terms of their positioning, their tactical awareness. Tuchel's Dortmund, if you go and look at them, they were maybe the most exciting team in Europe to watch that year. Free-flowing Goals from absolutely everywhere. If we pull that up, we'll see Dortmund, 15-16. Now, admittedly, it is the Bundesliga, so it's not quite as strong, obviously, as the Premier League. But you look at that team that he had that season. He'd just taken over from Jurgen Klopp. In the league, they scored 82 goals, conceded 34. In the champ in the Europa League, they scored 10 in their group, beat Porto, beat Dortmund, and then or beat Spurs and then ran into Liverpool. They scored 140 goals in all competitions. 140 goals. And they were just they were special to watch. They really were. That front four when Kagawa went back and they had Mkhitaryan one side, Royce the other, Kagawa as the 10, and Aubameyang through the middle, they they were genuinely special going forward. The following season, they weren't quite as good, uh, but they scored 21 goals in their Champions League group. A group that included Real Madrid. In the Bundesliga, they scored 72. Now, they did make some sales. Mkhitaryan left. Gundogan left. Gundogan was in that team the first year as well. Mats Hummels left. That first year, they had such a good team. Weidenfeller, 
and Berkey were the goal. Berkey had taken over. Neither were great, but Berkey's good. Weidenfeller's good. At that point, he was a bit past it. They were a little bit short in defence. It's probably what cost them over the course of the season. They were still relying a lot on Pizcek at right back. Socrates, Matthias Ginter, not great. Schmelzer was kind of on the tail end. Eric Durham wasn't good enough. Hummels was starting to decline at that point, which is why they were so happy to sell him. I'll never understand why they brought him back. But that midfield, Sven Bender, Ilke Gundogan, and Yuri Sahin in rotation. And then Mkhitaryan, Kagawa, and Royce behind Aubameyang. And Julian Vigel also in that midfield rotation. Now, Gundo, I think, missed a bunch of games that year, didn't he? No, he, no, that was the year he played. It was the year before that he missed a bunch of games. He played 25 league games. Vigel played 30. These including sub-appearances. Sahin only played nine in the league. Bender played 19. Mkhitaryan played 31. Kagawa 30, 39. Royce 26. And Aubameyang 31. If they'd had a bit more depth, even with the goalkeeper, Berkey was fine. They had a bit more depth and better fullbacks. Because I think even at centre-back, you get away with Hummels and Socrates. But if they did better full-backs, then you're running out. Vigel, before the ankle injury, and Gundogan, that was an elite midfield. And then that front four, that is sensational. But the point is, they were uber exciting back then. And then you look at what he was doing at Chelsea. And look at what a drastic change that was. But he won a European Cup. He won a European Cup. So it worked for him. Now at Bayern, he's sort of in between. I think he's found a nice balance at Bayern between being pretty strong defensively, not so much against Eintracht, and still very good going forward. But from what he was at Mainz and then Dortmund, because he was kind of naive defensively, and then he became uber defensive, and now he's found the balance. And I think he's probably the other one I'd look at along with Howe. I think his his was even more drastic than Howe's, though, because he goes from that Dortmund team that just can't stop scoring to a Chelsea team who can't score at all via PSG, where much of his approach changed. And the biggest reason was Thiago Silva, because he had to protect him. I would bet if Thomas Tuchel was given truth serum, he didn't want Thiago Silva in his team. Now Silva had the bet had had advantages that you'd get from organization, talking others through games, leadership. But from a tactical point of view, he was a liability. And the same thing at Chelsea. And Tuchel did one of those masterclass things where he talked about having to alter things for Thiago Silva. And I would bet if he got truth serum, he wouldn't. He would prefer to replace Thiago Silva with a defender that could actually move. So he wouldn't have to play Marquinhos as a six, a a quick centre-back at right-back and a quick centre-back at left centre-back, all just to protect one player. Uh, Chris Colby, you talked about the Hodgson avoided relegation trophy 
what do you think he would have as the figure on top of the trophy? I could also see him opting for a basic plaque. Yeah, potentially even a plastic one. Because, you know, you wouldn't want to be spending money on stuff. But he may have just called it the Roy Hodgson avoided relegation trophy. And it might just be a picture of his face. I I want to believe that that's what it is. It's a trophy that's an exact mold of his head with handles added. That's what I want to believe it is. And he probably keeps Werther's originals or something inside of it because the top lifts off. Um, Imagine that the Premier League decided to go with a Manning cast structure for some upcoming key fixtures, specifically Liverpool Arsenal, Liverpool United. Pick two primary personalities, doesn't have to be brothers, then two guests for each half. Oh. Hmm. For those who don't know, the Manning cast is Peyton and Eli Manning, former NFL quarterbacks, both two-time Super Bowl winners. Peyton's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Eli will get in, but he wasn't nearly the caliber player Peyton was. Um, and they do a broadcast of a big NFL game and they have guests on. So who would we pick? Do you know, part of me would love to see, for Liverpool Arsenal, Benitez and Wenger. Just from an analytical point of view, I think they'd be fascinating, but they don't have the personalities to host. So what I'll do is for Liverpool Arsenal, we're going to go... We'll go... Ian Wright's definitely the Arsenal one. He's, I really like Ian Wright. I think he's good. I think he's good on, on punditry. I think Lee Dixon's decent as well. Um, Liverpool one is tough because a lot of the ex-Liverpool players are just dreadful. I'll go Ian Wright, Robbie Fowler. I think that'd be a good combination. I think they'd be quite funny together. And then as guests... For one half, we'll have Wenger and Benitez. And I think for the other, maybe you would go... Alan Hansen and Patrick Vieira, maybe? Just trying to think of people that have done punditry. Because you want them to be able to talk about the game. So that might be interesting. Or what you could do is you could look to maybe go with the celebrity fan route for the first half, say, and then the more analytics approach for the second half. The, the more the more ana- analytics draw, the more an- analysis-based for the second half. So Wenger Benitez, second half. First half, 
two celebrity fans. So, like, for Liverpool, let's say Daniel Craig. And for Arsenal, I actually don't know what celebrity Arsenal fans. Celebrity Arsenal fans. And we're definitely not having Piers Morgan on. The Queen apparently was an Arsenal fan. Prince Harry is an Arsenal fan. Benedict Cumberbatch? Lewis Hamilton could be interesting. Idris Elba. You know what? We'll go Idris Elba and we'll go Daniel Craig. So that'll be Liverpool versus... Um, versus Arsenal for Liverpool United I quite like Keane and Carragher together I do I, I quite like Keane and Carragher and there's a mutual respect there between the two of them so I think I'd go with them and then I, I'd still go Benitez and Ferguson or Benitez and Van Hal. Benitez and Hal could be interesting because Van Hal is spiky enough to start a row. But Benitez Ferguson would be the most interesting because Ferguson's interesting to listen to. And then celebrity-wise, uh, let's have a look and see. The only one I can think of for United is Mick Hucknall. And I don't think we're going to want him on. Um, Stormzy? Usain Bolt? Um, let's see. Currently looking at a list of... Uh, there's, there's, some of these are now some questionable, questionable ones. And they've got Bertie Ernest on here. For those that don't know, he's a former uh, Taoiseach of Ireland. Uh, best known for um, the bit of corruption. He could be a good one to have on. Bertie'd hold nothing back. few pints and he'd just go hell for leather. Conor McGregor. Jesus wept. Um, Dominic Moynihan. Ed O'Brien from Radiohead. I refuse to accept that Floyd Mayweather is a Manchester United fan. Trying to think who'd be who'd be good. Like you want someone that's obviously used to being on TV and used to talking about a game, like talking about a topic. Um Johnny Sexton could be quite interesting because he's used to breaking down sports. But I'm not sure how funny he'd be. He is quite he is quite funny, but I don't know if it'll translate all that well. Still looking down this list. There's an awful lot of people down here, and I'm I'm having doubts over some of them, whether they're actually uh United fans or this is just this is just some nonsense to try and big up United.
Um, I wonder would someone like like Lana Del Rey and Rachel Riley, though Rachel Riley's a terrible gang of lads, but I wonder if I wonder if they would well they'd definitely piss off Joey Barton, which would be part of it. I wonder if they'd be decent. Um other Liverpool celebrity fans. John Bishop would be funny. You could do John Bishop. Uh is there any comedians that support Man United? Comedians from Manchester. Is Jason Man- Manford a Manchester United fan by any chance? Jason Byrne. Let's do John Bishop and Jason Byrne. And they can provide a bit of a bit of humor and hilarity. So that's what we'll do. Uh, moving on. AMK2889 really enjoyed yesterday's pod in which you went over United's horrible Champions League campaign as well as some other clubs and whittled it down to your top five. It was interesting and overall good listen. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I was wondering if you'd be able to do the same, but for World Cups, maybe starting at World Cup 70 and working your way to the most recent World Cup. I certainly can. Uh, 1970 World Cup. Right. Okay, right, 1970 World Cup. Group one, Soviet Union, Mexico, Belgium, El Salvador. I don't think anyone's embarrassed there. Not in group two, not in group three, not in group four. So nothing in 1970, I don't think. Belgium going out, they'll have been a little bit disappointed, but it's a tough group. Um, 74. Both Germany teams go through. Chile, Australia go out. Yugoslavia and Brazil ahead of Scotland. Scotland can't be too upset. Group three is fine. Uh, Italy going out in group four of 1974. Um, They beat Haiti. They drew with Argentina. They lost to Poland. Fabio Capello scored in that game. Um, but Poland were pretty good in the 70s, so I don't think that's embarrassing. Uh, 1978, France go out, but their group is Italy, Argentina, Hungary, and themselves. That's tough. And they did beat the Hungarians, so they, could, they didn't get embarrassed. Uh, Mexico finishing bottom of Group 2 that year with no points. Fairly, fairly terrible. Um Spain weren't great in the late 70s, so them going out's not a big deal. Scotland will have been annoyed to go out in the group stages of 78, but they weren't brilliant. And like Peru, it's just one of those things where you just catch lightning in a bottle in a tournament. They beat the Scots, drew with the Netherlands, and beat Iran. So, you know, even though they went out bottom of the their group in the second round, they were in with Argentina, Brazil, and Poland, who again were still quite strong by that point. So nobody yet, I don't think, that we would class as embarrassing. Um, 82. Nobody in Group A. That's fine. Nobody in Group B. 
nobody in C, nobody in D. Yugoslavia going out, a little bit of a shock, but Northern Ireland were great in that group stage, and obviously Spain were the hosts, so they're pretty strong. Scotland go out, but they're in a group of Brazil, who are it's 82 Brazil, maybe the best team not to win the World Cup. And the Soviets, who were so strong back then. So, no, nobody in 82. In 86, no, 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 no. 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 Portugal will have been upset, but Morocco were good. England are in that group, and so are Poland. So, I mean, it's coin toss kind of group. Um, it is often forgotten, actually. While, just what while I'm seeing it there, it is often forgotten that England obviously went out to Argentina in the uh, quarterfinals of that World Cup and have cried about it ever since. If we go back and look at that group, they lost to Portugal, who finished bottom. They drew at Morocco, and then they beat Poland. And that meant that they finished second in the group, a group that England should have won, given the squad they had. Morocco end up winning the group. Now, Morocco play West Germany in the round of 16. So had England won, they would have played West Germany. Instead, they finished second and get Paraguay. So... It's not like everything went against them in that competition. Then they ended up playing Argentina and getting beaten. And obviously, West Germany ran the table on the other side, got the final and lost to the Argentines. Um, 1990. Nobody in Group A will be embarrassed. The Soviets were, I remember, were, were, were devastated to go out bottom of their Group B. They were in with Argentina, who everybody expected to qualify. But Cameroon were massive underdogs. And Romania, not much was known about them. Now, everybody had seen the Stoya team a few years previously winning the European Cup. But the Romanian team wasn't one you were looking at and thinking, oh, yeah, they've got a real chance to get into the knockouts. So I think the Soviets... Um, will be very disappointed by how that worked out for them. They hammered Cameroon in the final game of the group, but Cameroon had already qualified, so it didn't really matter. Uh, Scotland going out to Costa Rica in Group C that year as well and losing to Costa Rica, I think they'll be very, very disappointed. They did beat um, Sweden, who you would have thought would have been sterner competition than Costa Rica but I so I'd maybe say them as well but it's not embarrassing like they still won a game Soviet Union won a game none of them got embarrassed uh, Group D is fine Group E is fine Group F is fine yeah so you you could maybe look at look at the Soviets there Romania they, they'd have fancied themselves against Romania and Cameroon uh, 94 I wouldn't say Colombia going out was embarrassing, but they were one of the pre-tournament favourites and there was huge expectation in their own country. And obviously, we all know what happened to Andreas Escobar when he went back to Colombia after his um, his own goal played a part in their elimination. 
though we should point out, it didn't play the only part. Like, they lost to the USA, but they also lost to Romania in the first game quite heavily. So, you know, uh, Group B, again, the Russians are probably a little bit disappointed, but they had fallen off by 94. The breakdown of the Soviet Union had obviously given us a whole bunch of new international teams. So Russia weren't as strong. They were Russia rather than the Soviet Union. Um, Nobody from Group C. That's fine. Group D? No. Group E is fine. Group F is fine. No, they're they're all fine. Uh, 98... Scotland would have been disappointed just to take one point, but it's a tough group. Norway were very good. Brazil were great. Obviously, we get to the final. There's a strong Morocco team as well. Um, group B, I don't think either Austria or Cameroon will be embarrassed. Nobody expected much from South, uh, South Africa or Saudi Arabia in Group C. Spain going out behind Nigeria and Paraguay in Group D. That's probably one that you'd have to take a strong look at. Spain had some really good players in the late 90s, so I think you'd have to include them. Um, Belgium, no. 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 Spain would be the one from 98 that you'd look at and say, well, you probably should have done better. Um, the most embarrassing one by an absolute country mile, and I, we're not going to pass anybody that's worse than this, is France in 2002. Reigning World Cup champions have also won the 2000 Euros. They're returning much of the same squad that won both of those tournaments. They lose to Senegal, they draw with Uruguay, and then they lose to Denmark. And they take one point. They don't score a goal. It's them. Like, that's it. You're, you're not going to get worse than that. That is that is horrific, considering how great they'd been in the previous two tournaments. Uh, also in that World Cup, South Africa, Slovenia, no. Uh, Costa Rica, China, no. Portugal getting dumped out behind South Korea and the United States. That one will, will have stung quite a bit. Um, you know, they still had Ruby Costa. They had Figo. It, Pretty strong Portuguese squad. So you'd have to say them. Uh, and Argentina going out in the group stage. One thing going out to England, very, very bitter rivals, but to go behind Sweden as well, you'd have to look at that one. You'd have to look at that one strongly. Croatia, Ecuador, no. Russia, Tunisia, no. France 2002 remains the worst, but we'll move on to uh, 2006. Group A is fine. Group B is fine. Group C is fine. D is fine. E is fine. F is fine. G is fine. And H is fine. Yeah, no, there's there's no embarrassments there. Um. Nobody getting routinely tonked, though Serbia-Montenegro 
They did lose 6-0 to Argentina in Group C. Took no points, no um, three defeats, only scored two goals, conceded 10. But they were competitive against the Ivory Coast. They were competitive against the Netherlands. It's only that Argentina game that makes it look so much worse. And it's not like they were expected to go and, and be, you know, contenders. Uh, 2010. France again. France again. You've got one point from a group that had Uruguay, Mexico and South Africa. You drew at Uruguay. Then you lost 2-0 to Mexico. And then you lost 2-1 to South Africa. So I would put that one second. We might come back to that one just to look at the squad. Um, B is fine. C is fine. D is okay. E is okay. Italy, bottom of a group with Paraguay, Slovakia, and New Zealand. Yeah, that's embarrassing. They drew with Slovakia. They drew with New Zealand. And, sorry, they drew with Paraguay. They drew with New Zealand, and they lost to Slovakia in the last game. Yeah, that's that's definitely right up there as well. Not a vintage Italian team, but, again, reigning World Cup winners. Reigning World Cup winners from 06 bottom of their group so we'll be coming back to them uh group h is okay so we'll come back to that everybody knows that well, i assume most people know the french squad from o2 but we'll we'll revisit it uh 2014 group a is fine spain World Cup winners, World Cup holders, out in the group stage. Out in the group stage. Netherlands and Chile, so a tough group because that's the Alexis Sanchez, Vidal, they're kind of really emerging at that point. That's that team from Chile. But the manner in which they went out, the 5-1 hammering, by the Netherlands, having gone 1-0 up and then just getting absolutely obliterated, then losing to Chile. They did beat Australia, but I mean, they should beat Australia. Um, Group C is fine. Italy out in the group stage again and England out in the group stage again. A group of Costa Rica, Uruguay, Italy and England. So you best believe we'll be coming back to have a good look at that as well. Um, Group E, that's fine. F is fine. G, Portugal going out behind the USA. A little bit embarrassing. A little bit embarrassing. Cristiano Ronaldo, utterly dreadful in another major international tournament. Yeah. And finally, H is okay. So we'll come back to that one as well. 2018. A is fine. B is fine. C is fine. D is fine. 
He is fine. Germany, yet another World Cup holder going out in the group stage. So, 94, Brazil win the World Cup. They get to the final in 98. France win the 98 World Cup, go out in the group stage in 02. Brazil win the World Cup in 02. They top their group, but go out of the quarterfinal stage to France in 06. Italy win the 06 World Cup, go out in the group stage in 10. Spain win the 10 World Cup, go out in the group stage in 14. Germany win the 14 World Cup, go out in the group stage in 2018. France win the World Cup in 2018 and got to the final of this past one. But that's quite a few winners over the last 30 years who've gone out in the group stage of the next World Cup. Um, yeah, we can come back to that. And then we have one left to do, so we'll do that and then we'll come back. And work our way through. Uh, group A is fine. Group B is fine. C is fine. D is... Mm, the Danes should be a little bit embarrassed by their performance, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, Germany going out of a group behind Japan. That's a little bit embarrassing for them, but the German team is not particularly good at the moment. Uh, group F is fine. Group G is fine. Uruguay, not great, but it's, you know, it's a tough group. Um, so I don't think anybody from that World Cup. So let's have a look at the France. France 2002 is, is the one. So Ulrich Grammy, Vincent Candela, Lazarazu, Vieira. God, I forgot Philippe Christenval existed. He was dreadful. Uh, Yuri Jorkayev, Makaleli, Desai, Gibral Cisse, Zinedine Zidane, Sylvain Wiltor, Thierry Henry, Mikhail Silvestre. This is, you know, not great. Lillian Turam, Fabian Barthez, Emmanuel Petit, Frank LeBeouf, Willie Sagnol, David Trezeguet. I mean, Christophe Dugarry, there's a lot of players there who'd been in the World Cup squad the four years beforehand, even more who'd been in the Euro squad in 2002, that that's a shocker for them to go out with that squad, to go out so meekly, to not score a single goal and go out with, you know, one point. That's really, really poor. Um, 2010... Who are we looking for in 2010? We're looking for the Italians and the French, isn't it? So again, the French. Hugo Lloris, Bakary Sanya, Eric Abadol, Anthony, Anthony Revelier, William Gallas, Mark Planos. You can kind of see why they went out. Frank Ribery, Gorkev, Gibral Cisse, Henri. He's old at that point. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the weakest French squad since the kind of post-Platini, pre-Zidane kind of era in the early 90s. 
And I still think that squad will probably beat this squad. So, you know. Um, the Italians were looking for. Buffon, Maggio, Crescito, Cellini, Cannavaro, De Rossi, Simone, Pepe. Uh, Gattuso, Iaquenta, Di Natale, Giardino, Marchetta, Boschetti, De Santos, Marchisio, Camronesi. I mean, it's a mixed bag of a squad. It's a very mixed bag of a squad. Lots of outstanding players, some who would become outstanding players, like Leonardo Bonucci is there, but he only had two caps. But it's still a mixed bag. It's still a bit of a mixed bag. No Nesta, obviously, is a a very important thing to note. 2014, then, we are looking for the Spanish. Casillas, Albiol, Piquet, Martinez, Juanfran, Iniesta, Villa, Xavi, Torres, Sesc, Pedro, De Gea, Mata, Alonso, Ramos, Busquets, Coque, Alba, Diego Costa, Santi Cazola, David Silva, Cesar Azpilicueta, and Pepe Reina. That, that's a shocker. Considering they'd won three international tournaments in a row, my assumption is they were just burnt out. That's the only thing I can really assume. Like, when you look at how many caps some of those players had going into that tournament, Iker Casillas, 154. Iniesta, 96. Sorry, 97. David Villa, 96. Xavi, 132. Torres, 107. Sesc was only 29, 27, rather. 89. Alonso, 111. Ramos, 117. Busquets was 25. He had 65 caps. David Silva had 80. Like, obviously, Puyol is, is long gone. Cap de Villa is gone. But PK is there. Ramos is there. Juan Fran was outstanding. Didn't win enough caps. He should have won far more, but he was really good. Aspilicueta still hadn't really sort of emerged properly at that point. He was really good for Chelsea, but hadn't emerged. At international level, never really did emerge at international level. Uh, but admit that midfield is loaded, like loaded. There hasn't been many midfield groups at international level more talented than Javi Martinez, Andreas Iniesta, Xavi, Sesc, Juan Mata, Xabi Alonso, Sergio Busquets, Coke, Santi Gazzola, and David Silva. Like in the history of the game, there's been very few midfield groups at international level better than that and they were dreadful in that competition collectively dreadful they might be the one to to challenge our uh, our friends from France because that's probably a stronger squad now defensively it's it's hit and miss far more miss actually than hit but goalkeepers Iker Casillas David De Gea Pepe Reina strikers Villa Torres Pedro Diego Costa that's rough. And then, oh, 2014, we also wanted to look and laugh at England. 
uh, who went out in their group. Joe Hart, Glenn Johnson, Leighton Baines, Stephen Gerrard, Gary Cahill, Phil Jagielka. God. Jack Wilshire, Frank Lampard, Daniel Sturridge. Why was Lampard still in the squad? Lampard and Gerrard shouldn't have been in that squad by that point. They just shouldn't have been in the squad. Uh, Sturridge, Rooney, Welbeck, Smalling, Foster, Henderson, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Phil Jones, James Milner, Ricky Lambert. I mean, that is a diabolical squad. (laughs) That is an atrocity. Adam Lalana's in there, Ross Barkley, Fraser Forster, a very, very young Luke Shaw, a young Raheem Sterling. That is an atrocity of a squad. The seven standbys. It gets even worse. The seven standbys. John Ruddy. No disrespect. You weren't an international caliber goalkeeper. John Flanagan. John Flanagan. John Stones. Michael Carrick should have been in the squad. When you look at some of the dreck that was in the squad, Michael Carrick not being there. Michael Carrick winning 34 caps for England is a disgrace. Michael Carrick is historically, in my view, the most underrated English player of the Premier League era. You know when people trot out that, oh, if his name was, like, people just say it with Danny Ings. If his name was Ingsinho or Lalana, if his name was Adolfo Lalini or whatever garbage they'd come up with, he'd be, no, all of that is crap. But Michael Carrick, if he had been Spanish or Italian or even French, would be held in the highest of regards. A genuinely outstanding footballer with West Ham, briefly with Spurs, two years, and then with United for 12 years. And right up until the end, he was still a really good player. Couldn't really run anymore, but he was still a really good player. Michael Carrick replaced Roy Keane at United. The hardest possible ask for a player. And he wasn't as good as Keane. But he was great in his own right. Five league titles, an FA Cup, two league cups, a Champions League and a Europa League. He was magnificent. A brilliant defensive midfielder. Read the game at an incredible level. Brilliant passer. Didn't need to tackle. was just always where he needed to be. Very much in that Busquets school of defensive midfielder. Not as good as Busquets, obviously, but a great player. But that England squad is an atrocity. Oh, the rest of them, by the way. Tom Cleverley. Jermaine Defoe, fair enough. Andy Carroll. Andy Carroll in the England squad. Andy Carroll, John Flanagan, John Ruddy, and Tom Cleverley. Ricky Lambert, Adam Lallana. <laughs> Christ. Oh, that's woeful. A drug test needed for Roy Hodgson. That's an atrocity. How wasn't he fired after that competition? Um. Yeah, the Spain... 
14 squad and, and France in, in 02. They're the two worst. I would still go France worst because I, I do think Spain were burnt out, but still. And France had an easier group. Um, the Mauritian won. Parma won eight trophies between 1991-92 and 0102, certainly the club's most successful period. How did their playing style evolve? I've I've done Parma a few months back as a as a nostalgia day. If you look at the early Parma when they had Zola, Espria, and Broling, it was all about movement, and they were a far more fluid team. They were a better team in the late nineties with Chiesa and Crespo up front, but they were a little bit more predictable because Crespo played as an out and out nine. That partnership never quite got to hum for as long as it should have. Like that should have been that is to me still to this day one of my all-time favorite front twos. Chiesa was there for three years. Crespo was he two years at Parma. Four years at Parma. So they played all three years together. Crespo Crespo came quite raw from from River. You could you could see the development in him. His second and third years, sorry, third and fourth years, 28 and 45, 27 and 43. Chiesa left before that last season. So they only had one season where they were both outstanding. In the first two years, Chiesa was the better of the two. The last year, Chiesa's 18 in 46. And Crespo's twenty-seven and four in sorry twenty-eight and forty-five, they're brilliant together that year. And then Chiesa gets sold, and he goes to Fiorentina. Parma transfers, Chiesa out, Veron out, Sensini out. A bunch of players retired, and a bunch got sent on loan. They brought in Marcio Amoruso who's another one of my favourite players from that era, had more success with uh, Udinese before Parma and Dortmund after Parma. The partnership with him and Crespo never worked. Never worked at all. Um, But, like, you look at that team with Varon kind of sitting in midfield and running the game, and then Crespo as the nine, plus they had that that defence, with Cannavaro, Turan, Buffon. They had that unbelievably strong spine. And I always felt like when they brought in Ariel Ortega, it messed with the chemistry, and it wasn't a surprise when they binned him off after a year. As talented as he was, it wasn't a surprise. just didn't work out. What's funny is... So, when they bought Crespo, there was a sell-on clause put into the agreement. So, they just paid 28 million lira, which is about 9.5 million British pounds, to buy Ortega. They sell Crespo. There's 12 million lira owed to 
um, River as a result of that Lazio buying Crespo deal. And rather than rather than just give them the money, they gave them Ortega. I'm like, here, have this fella. Um, we don't we don't want him anymore. Yeah, you don't see deals like that anymore. Um, they were they were better, but more conventional in the late nineties. They were more unpredictable in the in the early part of the decade. With that Zola Esprit, I mean, nothing was ever going to be predictable with Tino Esprit up front, with Thomas Brolin coming from midfield, and with Zola, the little genius that he was. Um, but yeah, they were a better team in that late nineties Parma team. That is, that is one of my favorite teams that that didn't win the the major silverware, didn't win a Champions League. Didn't win Syria. They did win the UEFA Cup and the Coppa Italia. What a team! Buffon, Benarivo, Apollini, Sensini, Diego Fuser, Dino Baggio, Hernan Crespo. Aspria was back at that point. Any squad player? Veron, Mario Stanic, hugely underrated. Cannavaro. Abel Balbo coming off the bench, Chiesa, Turam, Stefano Fiore. Because they couldn't have Alessandro Nesta, they had Alessandro Nista as the backup goalkeeper. But that's a hell of a team. That is a hell of a team. Buffon in goal. Turam right back, Benarivo left back, Cannavaro and Sincini in the middle. Veron and Bogassian sort of as the sitting mid. It was a kind of a diamond. Fuser and Baggio, the more attack-minded of the two, of the, of the four rather. Fuser, the most attack-minded. And then Chiesa and Crespo up front. What a team. Stanich, Balbo, Vanoli, Espria, all contributing off the bench. Musi, that is an unbelievably good team. You're probably two players from a real title winner at that point. They win the UEFA Cup. They won the Coppa Italia that year as well. Uh, they finished fourth in the, the in the league. There were 15 points off top, but you could see them run out of steam. They were brilliant and top after 16 games. They'd only lost twice. They only lost three times in the first 23 games. They were second with 11 games to go. They lost six of their last 11 games. And that knocked them to fourth. They just ran out of steam. Simple as that. They were trying to compete on too many fronts. What a team, though. Crespo scores 28. Chiesa scores 18. And Balbo adds 12 off the bench. In midfield, they get seven from Fuser. 
Seven from Stanich, who was largely a squad player. Five from Bogassian, who was more a ball winner than anything else. Veron got four. Vanoli got four as a squad player. Espria, Fiore, they scored three each squad players. Sensini got two, Baggio got two, and Cannavaro got one. That is that is an all that's an unbelievably strong team though. Malazani is one of the forgotten managers of that era. Because he was like with all Italian managers who weren't the very, very elite, they all just became these journeymen. Like he spends years working his way up at Kievo. Never really had a playing career. Works his way up. Gets the job in 93. Four years as Chievo manager. Goes to Fiorentina for one year. Goes to Parma, gets three years. Then after that, just gets into this cycle of a new job, a new job, a new job. So Verona for two years, Modena for a year, Panikonitis for a year, Udinese for less than a year, Empoli for a year, Siena for a year, after a year out, Bologna for a year, Genoa for less than a season, gets sacked, gets rehired by Genoa, gets sacked again, goes to Palermo last jig time, and then Sassuolo for, again, less than a year. And he has not managed since 2014, which is nine years ago, having worked solidly for 20-plus years and been a decent manager. Like, he did really good work at Parma. He did pretty well at Panic and Ithos. Um, he did fairly well at Chenoweth them until they sacked him and then they brought him back and it was a disaster. Yeah. He's a good manager, though. If he was English, he'd still be getting jobs to this day, but he would have stayed longer in some of these. Yeah. Anyway, that is it. That is our last question. Um, and that's my most memorable team of, of Parma during that era to answer the second part of your question. Uh, I will see you all tomorrow. I've got to go and watch a game of football now. So bye-bye. Podcast Network.